Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today with a very special guest, Flo Crivello. Flo was a product manager and engineer at Uber for four and a half years and has now set out to uh, start his next thing. Uh, Flo, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So Flo, before we get into Uber specifically, when you sort of look back at the, the arc of your career to date, what do you think is the thread that you've kept on pulling or the thing that has most motivated you to, to make certain decisions? Huh. What you spend your time doing? Yeah. I would probably say it's, uh, and, I, and I only answer this question now because I was actually wondering the same question recently. And it's the first time that I identified this, but I would say a sense of, a sense of adventure, right? And, and when you ask people what they're optimizing for in life, like very often people think that the, the most common questions are going to be either money or career or family or happiness. And I actually think that adventure is, is one of the most interesting questions out there, right? And so... That and, and probably independence, right? And so when I, I, I left friends, I was 20 and I just saw more and more that, well, first of all, Silicon Valley was the place to be if you were in tech. And two, I just did not see myself aligned with, with what friends had to offer, like politically and economically and, and all of that. And so there was, I, I just took like a very uh, rapid decision. And like within three weeks, I had like, closed my company and, and, and gave back my apartment and just moved here with very little plan. And I think, I think that was that. There was like a quest for adventure and a quest for independence. Yeah. When, when I think about what, what I know of you, I sort of think about someone who's like really excited about markets and progress and meritocracy and, and um, agency. Do you see, like, how do you sort of compare your, yourself when you said you, you weren't sort of resonating with French culture politically or economically? Like, what is the difference there? And how do you sort of explain why, how you are so different. Yeah, it's, it's hard to overstate and people don't realize because superficially, France and the US are very similar, right? Like when you're in the street, like people, it's a, it's a Western country, right? But in its philosophy, people don't realize how very different and not just France, but the old world and Europe and the US remain, right? There is this amazing quote that I love from uh, Marie Antoinette, who uh, disdainfully said of Benjamin Franklin, who was, you know, uh, a diplomat in, in France for the last part of his life. And she said, oh, like a mere printer's foreman could never have risen to such rank in Europe, right? And she was saying that like it was a good thing, right? And, and Benjamin Franklin would have wholeheartedly agreed was, was what the, the biography was, was, was commenting. And like Europe is a lot more class conscious and there are really multiple classes in Europe, right? And so... There is a political class. There is this very little school that's called the ENA and like something like 90% of prime ministers and presidents of the last five decades are coming from that tiny school that has something like 200 students a year and just a tiny, tiny, incestuous class, right? And likewise for, I hate using this word, but there is still somewhat of a bourgeoisie in France, right? When I arrived here in, in, in the US, I was surprised at how available everyone was, right? And like the very first weekend I was here in San Francisco, I was in Dolores Park and I saw some guy who was doing a barbecue and I walked up to him and I was like, are you Dustin Moskowitz? He was like, yeah, sure. And like, he made me like, a, he made me a hot dog. And I was like, this is amazing. Like, it's like, the guy was like totally casual. He was like, yeah. And like in the US, just because you're a billionaire 
doesn't mean you don't mingle with other people, right? And and people don't realize that in the U.S. Like, yeah, I mean, why? You know, you're just a guy, right? And people don't realize that in France either. They don't realize that in France, most of the billionaires don't want. Not only do they not want to hang out with you, but they don't want you to hang out with their daughter. Yeah. Right. It's there is this there is this notion of class for sure. Why why is that in the sense of why is America different and why hasn't the old world evolved or, or changed? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just very, very deeply rooted in the ethos of America, right? It is really about equality. There is this amazing book that's called The Radicalism of the American Revolution that was saying that basically America was the first country that built a system where there was no class <laughs> in, in several senses of the term. Uh, I, I just think that was from the beginning, that was the positioning of, of America. And so there was, there was and still is a selection effect of people who came here right? And forewent comfort, especially in the early days, and took a risk, right, for freedom and for independence. And because they wanted to build a better life for themselves, right? And still today, the selection effect is huge, right? When I look at my friends, like very many of my friends decided to leave France, and and some of them moved to the US, and, and very many of them decided to stay in France. And no offense to the latter, but there is certainly a very big difference in mindset between these two. Right. And so America is a country of risk takers. Right. I think because of this selection effect and because of this very early positioning philosophically. Yeah. And so, you know, we're just recording this, you know, after July 4th um, weekend. What is it sort of weird that you are more patriotic than people who are born here? (laughs) What is your sort of sense uh, sense of sort of some anti-American sentiment among uh, native born Americans? Like, how do you make sense of it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it is pretty common for, you know, it's kind of like also in the cults or like in the religions, like the converted is always a much more fervent believer in the cause than the, than the native, right? <laughs> uh, I think it's, it's very natural for people to take for granted whatever it is they have, right? And so Americans take prosperity and they take liberty for granted. And, and they think that they can, that is also why we're seeing a resurgence of, of socialist thinking in the US because they think that they can have their cake and eat it too. It's like, oh, why don't we implement all of these policies? Wouldn't the world be so amazing? It's like, well, actually, all of these things that you don't even notice anymore, they would probably disappear if, if we implemented these things. You just don't even see them, right? And so the grass is always greener, and, and everybody just sees, like, oh, you know, we could be this amazing socialist country. It's like, well, actually, your country is pretty darn good, and you, and you just don't notice it. And so coming from a country which I think the GDP per capita of France is something like 30 or 40% lower than in the U.S. at least, right? I, I, I do appreciate what America has to offer. Yeah. And, and when you say the things that we don't notice that would probably, you know, be decreased that we take for granted, are you referring to GDP per capita? Are you referring to certain civil liberties or, or, or what are you speaking towards? I am referring to GDP per capita. I am referring to ease of doing business. I am referring to general frictionlessness in business life yeah. that people don't realize. It's just in France, the bureaucracy is infuriating. There is this thing in France where the labor code is you should see these pictures. It's like thousands and thousands of pages long. Nobody understands it. And there is this thing where they had the sense to be like, oh, you know, we don't want to kill startups. It's just too much regulation. So we're going to do a thing where some, some regulations only kick in at certain thresholds. And one of the most important thresholds is number of employees, and it's like 50 employees. So once you have 50 employees, all of a sudden, so many regulations kick in. Yeah. And so France has this peculiarity that there are something like three times as many firms with 49 employees as they're all with 50 employees, yeah. right? Once you cross 50 employees, you're going to have labor inspectors 
who are literally, and I use the word literally, literally Marxists, right? They, they almost have like the right book under their arm and they come in your company and they despise you. They hate you, right? Even though you're feeding them, right? You're, you're the taxpayer here and you're the one creating jobs. And they despise you, right? Because you're an exploiter of the proletariat. Uh, and they tell you, actually, you're exploiting your people in this way, in this way, in this way, because they have like two square inch less than like the regulation says and all of that stuff. And then also like low unemployment, right? I'm not up to date anymore on France, but last time I checked, I think unemployment was like nine and a half points. And I think in the US it is, well, I mean, right now it's COVID, but before COVID, I think it was like 3.7. That's like a huge yeah. difference, right? Yeah. Did you ever have a, a Marxist phase? And if so, how did you, uh, if not, how did you avoid it? <laughs> Never. I, I read uh, Ayn Rand very early yeah. I, at, an, at an impressionable age, maybe when I was 15 or 16. It was actually a clandestine translation. Right? <laughs> and so I've kind of like, I'm, I'm more moderated than I used to be when I was a teenager, but very, very early on, very, very early on, I, I was not very aligned with uh, leftist thinking. Yeah. You, um, let's get back to adventure. So you're optimizing for adventure. H- how does Uber give, give that sense of adventure uh, to you? Yeah. I mean, I think Uber, especially in the, in the earlier days, there were a few better places to learn because it is, it is just one thing that people don't realize about Uber is like, it's just so darn decentralized. They really empower people very, very early on with a ton of responsibility, right? And a common story for people who start at Uber is like, hey, do X. It's like, wait, me? <laughs> like, do, do I have a team? Like, who's supervising me? Like, what's all? It's like, no, just, you just do X, right? And so you really, they give you huge chunks of businesses to own. And that really helps you grow as, 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 as a business person. And, and you are largely, you were more then than now, but still that remains true to some extent today. You had a huge latitude over how you pursued that mission that they gave you. Before we get to, to lessons, why don't you talk about the misconceptions around, around Uber and how Uber is sort of understood in, in popular culture? Yeah, I think people see it as one of the things that happened, obviously, is like the, 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 the Susan Fowler thing. And obviously, like what happened is inexcusable and should never have happened. Right. And, and I think Uber reacted strongly and rightly so. I think that created the wrong impression that Uber is just or, or was this, this place where there was a lot of sexual harassment and, and whatnot. Right. And a lot of people, and I believe Susan herself, right? But a lot of feminists and, stu- and, 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 and such said that actually this was representative of the whole industry, right? And that Uber was no better or no worse than a lot of other places on that dimension. I know a few women actually from Uber who said that, uh, and, there, and Margaret Ensinger uh, posted a public post on this, that she said she was actually grateful for Uber and for its culture because that was, she, she's naturally aggressive. And that was one place that actually allowed her as a woman to be aggressive, right? And that did not ask her, actually, you got to like be softer, you got to be more mellow, you got to smile, like none of that, right? It's like actually that aggressivity was celebrated to some extent at Uber. I think, I think that, is, that is one of the main misconceptions. I think people have this notion of Uber as like kind of like these business sharks, right? And in my experience, Uber is just like any other company. It's people who are well-meaning, right? They really want to do the right thing. And, and I want to build a good product and a good service for people. And I think they've succeeded at, they've succeeded at that, right? And sometimes some things went wrong. But look, I mean, during my tenure, I think Uber hired something like 800 people a month on average. And so that kind of growth is bound to come with a lot of chaos, right? And so a lot of HR processes were not together, just a lot of stuff. It was, it was like a, 
it was an adult in a baby's body, right? And so a lot of stuff was bound to happen. But I, I, I think, I, I wish more people who dislike Uber came for a few days inside the company and, and got a chance to talk to people inside Uber and just saw that like, they're, they're with people and they, and they mean well. Yeah. And I felt like Uber was sort of, the fall of Uber was sort of emblematic of how there was really just this sort of, you know, negative perception of the tech industry in general. Like they, they sort of coincided and Uber was sort of, you know, uh, a metaphor for that. When you try to make sense of that, of why technology industry started being viewed much more negatively, you know, like post-Trump basically, how do you sort of make sense of it? What is the mental model you use to sort of understand? Because uh, it used to be much more friendly, you know, in the early. Oh, sure. Well, I think, I think, there are two parts to my answer, right? Like one of them is just to Uber and the other to the tech industry in general. In the case of Uber, there was this reputation and this image of like this hard charging ethos and like the Travis brand and, and such, right? And and then Travis was on the console of, of Trump. And so there was, it kind of like muddied the waters. And so there was this conflation that was made between Trump and, and Travis and, and Uber and all of that. So I think this was part of what happened in 2017 was people were angry and they were looking for something to, to hit on, right? Then when it, when it comes to really the evolving dynamic between the media and Uber, in, in, or, or sorry, in the tech industry in the last few years, I think there is the charitable explanation and then there is the uncharitable one. I'll, I'll start with the uncharitable one. Um, the uncharitable explanation is, first, the tech industry is a competitor to the news industry, right? And especially newspapers. Like Benedict Evans put out that deck recently that shows the share of advertising in the U.S. that was captured by TV, by newspapers, by social media, right? And social media, the growth of social media has been vastly done at the expense of newspapers' revenue. And so tech has disrupted a lot of industries out there, right? And it's disrupted finance and education, but it has disrupted none more so than the media. And so I think that that is one thing that people need to realize when they read these articles that are very anti-tech is that you're reading almost like a press release from the Pepsi company against the Coca-Cola company. And like they're free to make these press releases, but people read them like they're very neutral and reflective of reality. And it's like, actually, no, like you're putting a press release against a competitor, right? So I think, I think there is one uncharitable explanation. A second uncharitable explanation is that the press has always had somewhat of an anti-capitalist strain in it, but it's become a lot more so, I would say, in the, in the last five to 10 years, right? And that is actually measurable. Like if you look at uh, mentions of different keywords in, in the New York Times, they've gone exponential in the last, in the last decades or in the last decade or so, right? And tech industry are just, they're all very successful companies there. And so it's, it's, it's very tempting to see them as representing capitalism, right? Uh, the, the most charitable explanation is that there are two charitable explanations. One of them is the tech industry has a thin skin. It, it is used to being treated in a much better way by the media. And so now that there is a more negative attention that is brought onto it, it is not used to it. And so it's got a thin skin and it's, it's overreacting to, to that, right? Another charitable explanation is that tech is becoming important. And it is the function of the fourth estate to examine whatever is important and its role in society. And it's more important to talk about the bad stuff than the good stuff, because this is the bad stuff that we have to do something about, right? I do wish we covered more of the good stuff, but that, that logic makes sense. You mentioned anti-capitalists over the past decade that, that sort of sentiment has increased. Why, why do you think that is? Oh, 
there are a few books. I think uh, Hayek wrote, uh, is it Hayek or, or Thomas Sowell? I think both wrote Intellectuals and Capitalism. And they talk about how there is this misconception that capitalism rewards the most virtuous, the most virtuous person or the smartest person, right? And that is kind of true, but not really, right? It only rewards smarts insofar as they are correlated with value delivered. At the end of the day, capitalism doesn't really care about smarts, right? And like Mozart died dirt poor, even though he was an intellectual genius and a creative genius, right? But your, your next door neighbor who sells whiskey is going to make a fortune, right? Capitalism rewards people who serve value for other people. If other people do not appreciate symphonies, capitalism is not going to reward you. If other people like whiskey, it, it, it is going to reward you, right? And so journalists and intellectuals hang out in the same circles as successful capitalists that made a fortune. And I think it is a little bit of a pity that our society rewards so much or attaches so much value to your wealth. And it's like, oh, your wealth is reflective of your quality as a person. And I actually think this is one of the reasons why it's a good thing that now we have other measures of quality. People always bemoan the rise of social media and like the, the narcissism that comes with it. It's like, oh, like who cares about your followers? I'm like, no, actually it's good. We should have other measures of someone's worth, right? Because money makes people jealous. And, and sometimes you are a worthy person and, and you're not making money and that's okay. Because, because money is not a measure of your worth. And so I think journalists, by virtue of hanging out with these people and seeing that they are no smarter than them, indeed very often actually dumber than them. And they're like, well, well like, you know, the system is unfair, right? Like, well, actually, the system is unfair. The system is just not what you think it is. Yeah. Let, let's get into some of the lessons that you, you learned from, from, from Uber that you, you find most interesting. Yeah. I think, I think the first one is really that decentralization, Right. That decentralization exists at two levels. It exists at the HQ level and at the city level. So when Uber opens in the new city, it doesn't just like flip a switch internally and it's like, oh, now we operate in Austin. It actually opens an office there in Austin and it hires a team. And in that team, there is going to be a GM for Austin, like a general manager. And that GM is going to own their P&L, their profit and losses statement, and they are going to manage their own business. And they are going to be given a ton of tools to manage their business, uh, data analytics tools and communication tools to send messages to drivers and riders and, and, and payment tools to, and, 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 and tools to have custom promotions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so that really unlocks, that basically makes the company multi-threaded, right? And, 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 compa- and, and these teams have so many tools that really they can build entire products without HQ being involved at any point. And so I think the most spectacular example of this is Uber Eats, right? That originally started out, it was called Uber Fresh, and it was a pilot in, in Los Angeles. And it was just like the old design of Uber had that uh, slider at the bottom. I don't know if you remember. And, and it just like cities could edit that slider. And they just added an Uber Fresh slider. And so when you put that, they had like specific rules on the back end that they had just created. And, and you just got a burger delivery right? And actually, I, I, I know the ups who was responsible for that. He, 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 he actually paid the restaurants with his own personal credit card for the first year. And I think he had like a million dollars on it at the end of the year or something like that. And so I think that is the other lesson, right? It's like really empowering people to run their own business makes you move faster. And it makes people feel like owners of their own business, right? I think another advantage of it, which is another lesson in, in there. And it's, it's very congruent with, there is this book that's called People Wear, and it's all in the title, really, right? They say it's not software, it's people wear. 
And so when there is a failure in a software project, managers and engineers always jump to the process and the tooling. Like, oh, let's adopt Scrum, let's adopt Agile, let's adopt, let's change Asana to Jira or whatnot, right? And the case that the book makes is that, no, actually 99% of the time when there is a problem, it's a psychological problem, right? This is the, the team hasn't gelled enough. They are not bought into the mission enough. They are not engaged enough. And a team that is engaged enough that gets the psychological part right and the process part wrong is going to succeed. And a team that gets the process right and the psychology, the psychology wrong is going to fail. And I think, again, making people owners of their businesses they're going to work harder and they're going to feel like they're in the trenches together because they don't need to ask for permission every time they need something. It's their business, it's their app, it's their city, right? And so that really, when you went to a city, when you visited the city office, you could feel that camaraderie so much, right? And people would literally sleep on the floor at the warehouse and they would be having the time of their lives. Yeah, so the decentralization, the hustling it creates and the gelling of the team it creates, I think are the biggest lessons here. Totally. And it segues into just a concept you're excited about more broadly, which is permissionless innovation. First of all, I think that's one of the most uh, uh, important concepts in economics. I, I forgot the name of this economist who was saying that Munger. It, it's funny because a lot of entrepreneurs don't realize the virtues of the system that created them. It's like, well, actually, you are benefiting from permissionless innovation. You were able to create that business without having to ask for anybody's permission. And then they create their little island in, in the ocean of capitalism and they create a little island where people have to ask for permission every time they want to go to the bathroom. And so in this case, I think allowing for permissionless innovation, there are like two things you need to do. One of them is, is cultural. You need to constantly send out the message like, hey, don't ask for permission. Don't ask for permission. And default, and when someone asks you for permission because you're in your decision-making capacity, default to yes, Right. And, and then there is one part of it also is just the software and the tooling that you build. And so Uber invested a ton in building what we call its experimentation platform. And that is something very common in the tech industry, right? And so Airbnb did the same, Snap did the same, Amazon, Facebook. And so they're basically kind of A-B testing internal tools or feature flagging tools. And so what it does is it, it allows you when you're an engineer or when you're an ops or whatever, you can create features in the app or in your city. And you can very easily turn on this feature just for 5% of people who live in Austin and who run an iOS app, right? And turn it on and turn it off. And then we even had things that automatically turned off things that had negative impact on the business and such, right? And so when you do that, what you do is you take out the downside of experimentation because now you're just experimenting on 0.x% of, of your user base. And the upside is uncapped. Right? And so I think that this is actually one of the returns to scale that is insufficiently explored. Is like as you, as you scale, you actually grow the downsides of your experiments, right? Because when one of your experiments works, like, oh, like, look at what these guys in Austin did. Like, let's just like propagate it everywhere in the company, right? Oh, like these guys in LA created this Uber pricing. Let's just create Uber Eats. And now Uber Eats is like a multi-billion dollar business. So it uncaps the upside and it allows you to spin up a lot more experimentation threads. And the downside is constant. And then again, like there is the cultural and the psychological aspect of removing barriers to like not having people ask for permission, which is just like you make people feel like it's their business. And is is, is Travis like a Steve Jobsian like figure? Well, another way of asking that is like if Steve Jobs was a CEO in 2017, would he have had a you know a dis, a quote unquote disgraced exit? You know, I you know been been, been let go after being immensely successful, you know, and building a company? Or like, is, that, is it something about the times? Or is it something where Jobs was like, he tripled down? Like, yeah, he was aggressive, but he, he sort of was able to like, he had a better sort of uh, reality distortion field that maybe it worked with journalists in a way that Travis's 
he either didn't or he didn't want to or he didn't think it it, it was in, in, uh, a move of integrity to do so. What, what's your sort of sense there? Yeah, I wasn't there when Steve Jobs got got fired, so I can't I can't really comment on that. But I do feel like they're very different characters, right? Like one of them is a real deep. I, I think of Steve Jobs as an artist, right, and and a genius product thinker, and he was lauded as an innovator for the longest time in the press. It isn't clear whether he would still be lauded today in the press. I do believe there was a political dimension to Travis' departure that wouldn't exist today. Uh, or, or rather that didn't exist at the time of Steve Jobs. And there was, there was a brand, like a very different brand between the two founders. Yeah. I, you mentioned Ayn Rand earlier. Like I, I do see Travis as like a character, you know, out of that book. <laughs> or, 100%. And for the longest time, his profile picture on Twitter was uh, the cover of The Fountainhead. And he's been saying in the press that uh, The Fountainhead was his favorite book and such. And when you do that, again, especially in today's climate, that just puts a, a giant red <laughs> bullseye on your, on your back, right? By the way, people don't know, but uh, Steve Jobs at some point in an interview also said that uh, Atlas Shrugged was one of his favorite books. Yeah. He did not get nearly as much flack as you would today if you, if you said that. Right. Yeah, it is interesting to think about Ayn Rand's legacy and how, um, you know, is there an author more polarizing than her that was writing at her, at her time period? That's yeah, fascinating. Yeah. I'm curious, are there strategic moves, not personnel-wise, but just like strategy, business strategy-wise that you think Uber, you're, that you might have done differently? Obviously, Uber's a very successful company, but if you were the CEO, you, you might have done differently. Or, and maybe it's a segue just into how transportation is evolving um, and you know who might be the winners uh, there. Yeah, I do think Uber was late to the micro-mobility revolution. And so as a result, today, they, you know, they exited the field and they, they just took a stake in, uh, in Lime. And I think had it been, uh, I think we, 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 we got onto micromobility something like 12 or 18 months after it really blew up. If we hadn't been this late, I think we, we should have had a seat at the table because this is very obviously like a significant part of the future of transportation. Talk a bit uh, and, and say more about micromobility. You, you wrote a po- you post on it, but h- how do you sort of, and you know, putting COVID aside, assuming we, everything gets back to normal, how do you see that, that uh, evolving, uh, the micromobility wars, uh, et, et cetera? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm very bullish on micromobility very, very broadly, right? And so it's just electric bikes and scooters, right? Very concretely. Now about the, comp- the companies themselves, like I don't know, right? I, I don't, I, I know that it's, it's a very tough business. It's very capital intensive, and so the founders might just get diluted to hell before uh, reaching any meaningful exit. And it is the, the unit economics are tough. It's a very, very tough business, and operationally, it's very tough. And you know, it's funny because people said, um, "Oh, like it's so much better than rideshare because you have no driver, right?" And actually, sure, you have no driver, but the upside of drivers is that nobody is throwing drivers up the Golden Gate Bridge. <laughs> <laughs> right, and nobody is stealing your drivers, and you don't lose your drivers, right? And so the capex uh, of micro mobility businesses is, is 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 huge because you have to buy these vehicles, and the life expectancy out there on the roads is is very low. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I I'm still immensely bullish on on the future of micro mobility because I really think it is the future of transportation, right? It's like better on almost every single dimension. It is textbook disruption in that it is disruption from the bottom. Right, it is a cheaper way to move around. That is 
that is that is that is non-attractive to incumbents to pursue. It's uh, literally it's it's about the same speed as a car because cars are just so slow today in cities. So it's about the same speed. It's and and this one is a bit more um, controversial, but it's actually a lot safer than cars, right? And people always say, well, like look at how many people die on the bike, and I'm like, well, every time someone die, dies on the bike, it's because they were hit by a car. Right, the bike is not the problem. The car is the problem. Right, let's just build bike lanes. And when you look at, at the what happened in Nordic European countries after they invested hugely in bike lanes in the seventies, um, I mean, fatalities per, per hundred thousand went down a lot. And so, I mean, when when two bikes collide, it's fine. Like people are maybe a bit bruised. When two cars collide, it's it's a whole different story. Um, it's it's a lot more inclusive because I mean bikes are much cheaper than cars. It's a lot greener because they're electric, and also the car is like four thousand pounds, right? So it's like ninety five percent of the energy deployed by the car is actually for moving itself, right? The scooter is going to be forty pounds, right? So th- that balance is flipped, right? Cars are just so inefficient and so ungreen. So I mean I could go on and on. They're more space efficient, which is the whole. I mean it solves traffic, right? It just it just solves it. So. It's, it's, it's just a panacea. I really think trillions of dollars of value could be unlocked with that transition in the next few decades. And, and it's going to happen. It, it has to. And, and what's going to determine whether the winner is, you know, one of the native, you know, scooter companies already or companies that don't exist yet or Uber or other sort of incumbents that are you know, moving into that space? Yeah, I would bet on, on, on one of the upstarts in there, like the, the, the limes and, and builds of the world. Because there are, again, like you do need to acquire the operational expertise to operate these businesses and it takes a long time and they're getting pretty darn good at it. It is capital intensive and at this point there is a good amount of consolidation going on in the industry and I think that uh, investors would be a lot more wary at this point to fund a new scooter player because they've seen how it played out with the other ones and they're like, okay, what is your advantage? It's not clear. So I would bet, I would bet on Bird Online yeah, as, as the winners in this space. You had a blog post about how Apple is uh, actually more more software than a, than a hardware company. In some sense. T- talk a little bit about what you were trying to, to do with that post or what you think people don't fully appreciate about Apple. Yeah, I, I, I made a survey. I mean, the, the simple size is very small, right? Maybe a thousand or so. But I asked people, would you rather an Android phone running iOS or an iOS phone running Android? And the vast majority of people say they would rather an Android phone running iOS. And I'm the same here, right? I would argue actually that Android phones, as far as hardware is concerned, have caught up and actually are ahead of, of, of iPhones now, right? And actually, I think actually it's, it's thanks to Apple, right? Because they educated Shenzhen, basically, and they educated China. And now, and now China can build amazing phones by itself, right? And OLED screens were there before the, on Android before on the iPhone. And tablets and very large phones were there before. And so it's also like a bigger ecosystem, so you have more choice. So I actually think the hardware is actually better today on Android than iOS. I think the big difference is the software, right? Because Apple is just better at building that and it is just better at design and at product than Google. I, I don't, I, you know, I admire Google as a company. I just don't think it's good at product and at design. Um, and, and so I think the genius of Apple is in the bundling of software and hardware. Like they sell those together. They don't license iOS out. And doing that allows them to sell effectively iOS for a lot more money than they would be able to sell it if they sold it, if they licensed it out, right? Because when you look at the gross margins of iPhones versus Android phones, I think the gross margin of the iPhone is somewhere around 40%. 
and the gross margin of Android phones, like the ultimate commodity is like 5%, if that, right? The difference there, Apple is going to make $400 on their, on their iPhone 10, iPhone 11 now that they, send, that they sell you. The difference is the software. The reason why we are paying this extra 500 bucks is because of iOS. And so effectively, you're buying iOS for $500, which effectively makes iOS one of the most expensive pieces of software that you're buying. And nobody knows that. I mean, nobody thinks it's like, oh, I'm going to buy iOS for $500. Everybody thinks, oh, I'm going to buy an iPhone for $1,000. And so psychologically, people are a lot more okay spending $1,000 on a piece of hardware than $500 on a piece of software. When you look at Apple as a, a company, compared with Uber, or just compared with companies that we build today, they sort of have you know, distinct principles, right? Like, you know, uh, much more closed uh, system. You know, they're super secretive in the way they operate. You know, sort of business principles that are sort of unique to to Apple. How do you think about that? Do you believe in sort of, you know, what works for Apple can work for, for other types of companies? Or how do you think about sort of when different organizational structures, you know, like, you know, Google, Amazon, Apple, these are all, all sort of cater that to work to them. When you're building an organization, how, how does one think about the various different trade-offs one, uh, one can make in sort of culture and, and principles to, to have a most effective outcome? Yeah, Ben Horowitz uh, wrote that amazing book on this. It's called uh, What You Do Is Who You Are recently. And one of the key insights in there is it all starts from strategy, right? It's all downstream of strategy, including culture and values. And so there is no one objectively best set of cultural values. It just depends on your cultural values need to support your strategy, right? Generally, I think it's very hard to draw lessons from Apple because it's just such a unique company and it's all very path dependent. That, that company is from a different era. It's got a very special DNA. It almost died a few times. So I would be very wary to draw any lesson from Apple because they are good at breaking rules, but I'm like, don't try this at home, right? It's like, they're, they're just weird, right? Just Apple. But then, yeah, I mean, like, Apple's strategy is all about building the best products in the world, right? And they're like, oh, you can be first to market, you can be cheapest, or you can be best for best, right? And so they don't have a culture of thriftiness, for example, right? Because they don't go after price, they go after, they go after quality. Amazon, on the, on the other hand, is in a lot more of a commodity business, it's in retail. And its value prop is actually, we are the everything store and we, we're cheap, we're never going to make you think twice about buying on Amazon because it's too expensive. And so they do want to be thrifty because also they're like just in a low margins business, right? The, the culture that you're going to see at Uber is also, it is, it is a less defensible business than what you're going to see at Google or Facebook. And so it is really all about staying ahead of the curve and hustling. And that is why a decentralized model makes so much sense for Uber because you need to be close to the ground. And by the time a piece of information went from the bottom to the top and the top made a decision which first of all wouldn't even be a good decision because it doesn't have the information. And then by the time the information reaches back to bottom, it's already too late. Right. So you need to react now. Right. And 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 then like finally like Google and, and Facebook have these cultures of you know they have amazing food and they have perks and, and all of that stuff. And again, I think that in that case it's really more downstream of the strength of their business model. And I see a lot of cargo cultism going around how Google manages itself. And I'm like actually they have like cash cow, they have a, a hugely defensible business. They can get away with doing anything. And so as far as you know, Google is like the worst managed company. I don't think they, they are, right? But like you can't draw any conclusion from the way Google manages itself just because their business model is so strong, right? And so I would, I would urge companies that um, fall victim to the aura of ex-Googlers to consider that and to be like, okay, Google is a cool company, but actually do you really want to inject some of that blood into your veins? Because they, you know, maybe you're, you don't have a business model that is as strong. Totally. You, you strike me as someone who's read a lot about sort of the history of, of Silicon Valley or, or, or technology. What do you think 
uh, is, is misunderstood uh, about that? Or do you think that people would have a better appreciation for if they sort of went and, and did that study? Yeah, I think there is too much emphasis around money today. First of all, because that sells. And so people are like, whoa, money. And also because it's, it's easy to talk about. And so I think we don't talk enough about the culture of Silicon Valley. And Sakuntala Panitarasne on Twitter had that tweet recently where, and I think it's on point, she said that Silicon Valley is really focused on substance or style, right? And I think people really underestimate how Silicon Valley is, 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 doesn't care about style, right? And so you're going to see, again, billionaires who make you a hot dog and they're like wearing flip-flops and a greasy t-shirt in the middle of the dollar park. And you're going to see founders take VCs out for dinner and they don't go to like Pabu Izakaya and like three-star restaurants. They're going to go to like a, a, a taqueria in the mission, right? And so it's really about, and I know that sounds naive and that sounds, but it's, it's, it really is true. It's really about your ideas, right? And you really do see people here who are 17 and they are not even college, they're high school dropouts and have a cool, if crazy ideas. And investors are going to be like, I, you're raw, right? You're, you're young and inexperienced, but I see something in you and I like your idea and I'm going, to, I'm going to make a bet on you and I'm going to give you some money so you go after your idea. I don't think it's very true of very many other places in the world. In, in 2018, you, you wrote a blog post saying, move to San Francisco if you want to build a, a, a tech company. And, and, may, and perhaps it was because of the reasons you just mentioned. Mention any more if, um, if, if, we, if we didn't cover them about why that was right at the time. And I'm curious, you know, in a post-COVID world, how, how much of, is it 60% right? Is it 90? Is it 10? What, what percent would you, you know, would you put to that, that post still being relevant? Yeah, it's, it's less true. I don't know how to quantify it, but it's less true. I was tempted to leave San Francisco recently. I will say that, and I do make that point in the, in the blog post. I'm like, look, I'm not saying you should live in San Francisco your entire life. I'm saying if you spend even just two or three years here, you're going to build a network here. And that network is sticky. And once you have built your network in San Francisco, it's like you can check out anytime you want, but you can never leave kind of thing. And so spend two or three years here. And so it is certainly true that for people who have spent a few years in San Francisco, who are connected, who have their network here, the case to stay is not very strong anymore, especially these days. I mean, I'm in San Francisco right now and I'm just hanging out in my apartment and I feel silly to pay this kind of rent to just stay at my place. And so I have been tempted to move out. I still believe that for young people, for new grads, for ambitious new people who are not connected, I do believe in the value of being here after COVID. So my money is still on San Francisco today, but the case is, is weaker. Oh, and also, I mean, one aspect on which it is stronger, actually, is that thanks to COVID, the rents have gone down tremendously. I think they're down 15% year over year. You were just describing San Francisco as a place that, you know, really cares about ideas. And, you know, even if someone is, is super young or has a non-traditional background, if they have a really compelling idea, why do you think that is, uh, San Francisco is that way more so than somewhere like New York or LA or like, what is it about the culture that sort of emerged that way that perhaps didn't as much in other places? That's a good question. That's a good question. Okay, so I have three parts to my answer. The first one is the... Okay, so the first one, I'm going to go with like the silliest one first, but um, Paul Graham talks about that in one of his essays, and he says the weather plays a role, or at least it used to, because in in San Francisco, it creates more permissionless, again, uh, spots where you can just experiment, right? And so the, the, the legendary startup started in the garage. Can't do that in Norway. Right, you can't do that in New York. I'm gonna, I'm gonna freeze in the winter. Right, so you need an office from day one. It's not just about money. It means you need something that is condoned by 
your surrounding system was here. It's like, yeah, you know, just work in the street, work in the garage, right? So I think I think that is one thing. The second thing is that I, I think again it's about the selection effect, right, of uh, moving west, right? And so California, you could say, is the America of America, right? It's like the most adventurous of the most adventurous who kept like just being in the U.S. wasn't enough, right? They had to push the frontier even then, right? And so California is like the last, you know, the last frontier in the U.S., right? And and so you know that's I think that's always been there in the culture, right? Like you, Steve Jobs has this amazing quote where he says there is a sense of permission in San Francisco. There is a sense of just sleep on the beach with your girlfriend at night, right? There is a sense of experimentation there. And the third one is I, I recently read that book that's called the, the Rise and Decline of Nations. That's amazing, blew my mind. And he talks about how the age of states actually helps entrenched interests form themselves and basically cartels form themselves and they then act as blocks to innovation, right? Because they want, they want to protect their own interests, right? And so the older a state has been around, the more time these cartels had to crystallize and the less time it has been around, the less time they had. And so California, again, as being one of the more recent states to, to, to have formed, uh, that would be one of the explanations why it's, it's, it's easier to do things here. What else did you take from, from, from that book or what, any other mental models that it gave you or, or changed for you? Yeah, I think, I think that was the main one. Like it really blew my mind because one of the implications here is that the reason why trade is good is not because what uh, economists call comparative advantage, which is, oh, you know, like you're better at this thing and better at this thing. If we trade, we can all be better. It's, it's actually because it makes it harder for cartels to form, right? Because when you are in the market of a thousand people, it's very easy to just like take the other guy who sells shoes and tell them like, hey, Let's agree to like not sell our shoes for less than 50 bucks a piece, right? But when all of a sudden you're competing against a million other companies, it's much harder for you to coordinate. So that was, that was one of the counterintuitive conclusions of the book. In San Francisco, one thing has always sort of confused me a little bit is why, you know, people say that San Francisco is too powerful, tech companies are too powerful. In some ways, they certainly are, but it, 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 they are powerful. How come they can't coordinate, you know, a few hundred votes to you know, protect their own narrow interests in, in local local politics. Why, why do you think it is? Yeah, I think I, I, look. I mean, again, the, more, the most charitable explanation here is going to be uh, that nerds are not good at politics, <laughs> and so again, it comes back to that uh, focus on substance, right? And I think for a long time that's been a feature and, and not a bug of, of Silicon Valley, and now it's got, it's got to catch up. And so you yeah. kind of see it with like the, the Congress appearances of of Zuck, which were not great, right? And you can tell that he doesn't really know what game he's playing, which is like not a game of substance. It is, it is a game of appearances, right? So I think, I think Silicon Valley is catching up on that, but I don't think it's very politically gifted. Yeah. You know, it is really interesting. The, uh, you know, the, the sort of insult uh, tech bro has really stuck over the last like five years, decade. But, you know, when you think of bro, you think of like a jock or you think yeah. of, like, you know, a, an athlete or, you know, Mr. Beautiful or whatever, you know. Um, and that's not what you think of when you think of nerd. And so it's just interesting how either those terms have like conflated into the same thing or, and, or as Silicon Valley has gotten more popular, it's gone sort of beyond pure, like pure nerds into more hybrids. <laughs> it's just more. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the notion of tech bro is like oxymoronic. It's, it's preposterous. Yeah. I mean, we're nerds. We're not bros, right? We're not jocks. And so then people are going to tell you like, well, the term has evolved. It's like, no, it hasn't. Like people still mean something when you say bros and they don't mean nerd and they don't mean a guy in his underwear eating like cold pizza and drinking Diet Coke at 4am in the morning, like coding. This is not the image that people have when you say bro. 
So yeah, I mean, I don't know about you. I haven't seen the bros. And supposedly I was at Uber where like they're supposed to congregate. <laughs> I don't know where they were, but I, I didn't see them. I, I don't really, I, I don't see what I would call bros. I would say, I think venture capitalists are more likely to be like MBAs, you know, yeah. than, than, than nerds. They're, but, they're, but they are like somewhat hybrids. But even still, I mean, it's not like, you know, fraternity brothers at, you know, University of whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like the, the chest bumps and like the chug chug. I, I haven't seen very much of that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I want to transition to another blog post you wrote about uh, the book Seeing Like a State. And so you also read book, you know, Order Without, um, what is it? Order Without Design. Yes, Order Without Design. Talk a little bit about um, that, that blog post or, or why the James Scott book was, which was interesting to you and where you see that play out in, in the real world. Yeah. So the TLDR of the book, and by the way, I, I'm, I'm slightly frustrated every time. And I think, I think I commit this mistake in my blog post. Like people, every time they talk of this book, they should also talk about the ribbon form post that's called a, a big little idea called legibility, I believe, because this is how everybody heard of the book. So I think it's a good, it's a good introduction to it. Basically, the idea is that states and institutions of power in general, right? So that includes companies are going to try to distort reality so it becomes more legible for them. Right. And so they give this example of like, okay, you have an organic forest that's messy, and then you have a forest that is built by a state that is a grid, right? Because grids just like people like grids and it's like it's more legible, it's more easy to understand. And the grid is just like the outermost layer of legibility, but really it's trying to force reality into this very limited space that 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 fits your mind. And so I think people don't like chaos, right? And I think they don't realize that nature is naturally chaotic, right? And that actually you get an immense value out of that chaos, right? And so, again, that was one of the things that I learned from Uber is like, I think decentralization comes with chaos, right? And you see that even with the web, like the web is decentralized and every website is its own design and it's like different languages and all of that stuff. So decentralization means chaos. I think decentralization is good. The only way you answer to people who are like, but it's so chaotic is to own it, right? And to be like, yep, this is good. This is how we want it to be. And, and Travis would always talk of that line between chaos and order. And he says, you kind of always want to be towing the line, right? You always want to be on the side of chaos. And if you're too far on the side of chaos, then it's everything collapses. But if you're too far on the side of order, then you're like a bureaucracy and you can't move anymore, right? So you have to find that right balance. And so I, I, I wish people recognized the value that there is in chaos. Yeah. You, you also read another blog post uh, where you talk about the tough tomato principle. Uh, yeah, the great weirdening of the world. What, what, why don't you describe what you were trying to, what you were trying to get across there? Yeah. Oh, I wish, I wish I called it something else today. I, I, I think actually I should have called it the, the value of mismatch. But basically, it's really um, a riff on uh, Marshall McLuhan's uh, "The medium is the message," which I think people misunderstand. Which is that the content of the world deform itself to fit the systems that we build in, in, inside the world. And so the, the example in that blog post is uh, tomatoes, right? Like tomatoes actually. Uh, during World War II were very expensive because there was a, there was a shortage of, of labor because of the war. And so they, they invented a mechanical tomato harvester. It was impossible to make it work because it was, it was insufficiently delicate with the tomatoes. And so their, their skin was very thin. And so it was just like ripping the tomatoes apart. They try and try and try to make the machine better and they can't, right? The solution was actually let's make the tomatoes tougher, right? And so today the tomatoes that we eat are tomatoes that were designed around the machine, right? And the machine is not designed around the tomato. Tomato designed around the machine. And so you see that you see that all the time, right? And every time you see a new paradigm come out, you see people who try to shoehorn the way the previous way of doing things onto the new paradigm. Right. And so you know, famously, the very first content on TV was just literally recorded 
theater plays or recorded radio talk shows, right? It's like, that's the origin of like the talk shows. And it took people, I think, a good decade before they were like, oh, actually, we can move the camera and we can do cuts and we can, oh, wow, it's a movie, right? And and so it always takes people a few years to like a decade to like realize what is the, the form of content that is native to a new medium. And when I say medium, I mean it like in a broader sense. Like, again, when we discovered how to, to work iron and we made iron bridges, like the very first iron bridges were made in the same way as we made wooden bridges. It's like, no, actually... You have to adapt the shape to like the new material that you're working with and its its constraints and its capabilities. And I think, again, I, I call this this period of mismatch, I call it the valley of mismatch. You have these two peaks of these two paradigms and in the middle, you have the valley of mismatch. And you see that everywhere. Once you stop paying attention to it, you see it everywhere. And you also see everywhere the medium, the message adapting to the medium. Like just the other day, I was working in San Francisco and I saw this hotel that's, good, that's called Good Hotel San Francisco, right? The reason why it's called that is because of Google. Right. So it's 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 actually the, the, the real world is actually now adapting to the Internet, not the other way around. Yeah, totally. Another book you, you wrote a book review on is Exit, Voice and, and Loyalty. What when you talk about what was most interesting to you uh, or, and what most inspired you and what's most relevant to today uh, in that book? Yeah, so the book very briefly says there are two ways to voice your, your disagreement about something. One of them is exit. So it's like, oh, I don't like the way Coca-Cola is doing business anymore. I'm going to stop buying Coca-Cola and I'm going to start buying Pepsi. And the other is voice. It's like, oh, I'm going to write a letter to my legislator to tell them to stop Coca-Cola or whatever. And so the book makes like a, an interesting counterintuitive point, which is that by introducing exit in some institutions, you actually weaken them and you actually weaken the value of voice because these, these institutions can only change themselves through voice. And so one example is... Uh, Public schools, right? Like public schools are not under any market pressure. They don't care about making profit. And so if you exit a public school because you're dissatisfied, you are actually taking your voice out. And so you're taking out the only thing that could have made it change, right? Which is, which is an interesting insight. I mean, but generally, I believe exit is, is a vastly superior, fo- superior voice to uh, force to, to, to voice, right? Because first of all, it's, it's multi-threaded. You can, it's much easier to exit. Like you, you make a billion exit decisions every day when you're like in a supermarket. They're like, no, I'm not taking this detergent because it's, it's too expensive. I'm taking this one instead, right? I think voice is easily distorted. It's very easy for a small minority of people to make themselves very loud. I think voice leads to the dictature of the articulate, right? You shouldn't even have to know how to read or, or speak to just put the detergent back on the shelf, which is what you do with exit. Um, Balaji Srinivasan gave an amazing talk about uh, exit and voice as it comes to politics, right? And I, I still believe that, you know, one of the most important forces that, that led to political reforms in Europe in the 19th century and like late 18th century was actually America, right? Now there was, a, there was an exit that was possible, right? And I, I think it is a bit sad that today there is no political exit possible anymore. And I, I, I would be very excited about something that creates that again. Yeah. And, 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 and Melody's written a lot about it, as of others, about sort of the charter city movement and the opportunity to bring sort of uh, competitive governance. And, and obviously, he's a good mutual friend of, of both of ours. Is there anywhere where you uh, have a difference of opinion that, than Balaji, would you say, whether it's on the charter city stuff or whether it's on the sort of media tech stuff or, or transhumanism more broadly? Or would you say, um, you know, pretty aligned across the board? No, I'm pretty, I'm pretty aligned with him. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think he's an amazing thinker. Um, yeah. You know, there, there are some points where I might be slightly more moderate, but I'm, I'm very aligned on the broad strokes. Yeah, totally. Uh, one thing he's inspired by is, uh, 
is 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 Singapore and Lee Kuan Yew. You've also you know read read about Lee, Lee Kuan Yew. What what is most inspiring to you about uh, his story or the Singapore story that you think perhaps is is not as appreciated as it should be? Yeah, I mean it's insane. It was it was it was a fisherman's village. I don't think it was, I don't know if it was actually a fisherman's village, but it was it was a you know it was nothing just seventy years ago, right? And today it is a first world country and like. The name of the book that Lee Kuan Yew wrote is on point. It's from third world to first world, first world, right? And it shows that that is possible, right? That is not the only country that did it. By the way, South Korea did something similar. Taiwan did something similar. Japan, to a lesser extent, really took off after World War II. It is, it is possible to do that, right? And so there is hope, right? You, you look at any third world country today. Again, South Korea, I think, was, was poorer than like Nigeria, just 60 years ago, and today it is just as rich as, I, I believe, Portugal or, or Italy, right? So, and, and then I think one fascinating thing about Lee Kuan Yew is that he broke a lot of rules, right? And so he's very philosophically challenging, right, for, for like the free market types um, because, you know, civil liberties are limited in, 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 South Korea, in, in, in Singapore and it is, it is an authoritarian government, um, liberty of expression is limited and, and it's, it's, it's very limited in a lot of ways and it, it really works, right? And so I think one of the things that I really learned from reading Lee Kuan Yew is the value of pragmatism, right? I find that the free market type people, free market fundamentalists, commit to some extent the same category of mistake as communists did, which is just look in front of you, dude, like it's not working, I like, no, it's not real communism. It's like, no, no, no. Like, it's just, no, just look in front of you. It's not working, right? And so I, I see the same thing with, with the free market types. Like, there are some cases where it's just not working, right? And so I think it's super important to always take reality as the starting point and to be pragmatic and to be like, okay, you know, we do whatever, whatever works. Theory be damned, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and so when we look at Taiwan, South Korea, Singapore, Hong Kong, I don't know, the, the, the countries you mentioned are countries that have grown so fast. What is the common thread that that ties them to, to, together? Like, what do they have that you know Nigeria or, or other countries that haven't uh, don't? Yeah. Oh wow. I mean, well, I think the first thing is a very strong rule of law, right? Uh, being merciless on corruption, right? I think I think that's like the, the first thing. Uh, Singapore was obsessive. All of these countries were about education. That was like the first thing that Lee Kuan Yew did. It was like we kill. This is just our entire value is of people. Right. And so Singapore has all of these programs where they send their people to Harvard and Stanford and such. And, and then when you come back, so it's, you don't have to pay anything. The Singaporean government pays for everything. And, and then when you come back, you actually have to work for X years in the, in the government. Right. Singapore also placed a huge amount of emphasis on the competence of their, of their public workers. Right. And the ministers in Singapore made millions. It's indexed, I think, on like the top 10% of the private sector. Right. I, I certainly do wish that public workers in the US were paid more. Right. Like you can't attract talent if 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 you don't pay people. There is this other book that's called How Asia Works. I, I don't know if the empirical research really bears its its thesis, but the, the thesis is that um and again uh, contra the free market fundamentalist beliefs, but it's it's that you actually do need protectionism and you do need mercantilism to help a, a, a country take off. Right. Again, like the, the, the answer of the economist is always the comparative advantage. And it's like, oh, even if you suck at making cars, it doesn't matter because you can sell wheat or whatever. But actually, these are like very low value add activities. And so I think Dan Wang calls it um, absolute advantage is what you care about. And so your company has no chance at catching up from like being a third world country and in making cars with GM and Ford. 
right? And so you need to kind of like give it a, a, a head start. You need to like help it, right? And so you need to protect them at least over the short term against the competition of GM and Ford so that they can build up their expertise. And then little by little, you force them to actually compete internationally and then actually compete. And, and now you've grown a local champion. Like South Korea has done that more than anybody, I think. Uh, again, I, I don't know if I believe it 90%, but it, it is a compelling case. Yeah, totally. Tyler Cowen had a post a, a few months ago called State Capacity Libertarianism. Some people saw that as sort of libertarians sur- surrendering, like, hey, we're never going to get our, our version. You know, we keep losing. We need to sort of compromise. Others saw it as sort of a maturing, like, hey, you know, you had this sort of childlike vision. Now it's time, you know, in the real world, there are governments and governments, you know, <laughs> exercise monopoly on violence. And it's time you sort of join the party uh, or grow up. Is that is that more where you see it? Or Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I view it, first of all, I view it as like a, a genius reframing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, and I also take issue with the fact that it seems to conflate cause and effect. And it's like, oh, look, like no big, no, no big country has a small state. And so it's like, well, actually, because the state is just capturing more and more of the country. So, but I think, I think there is something to be said about, you see a lot of libertarians who lean anarchists. And I'm like, libertarianism, in my mind, is not at all an anarchist philosophy. Like, libertarianism very clearly needs the state because libertarianism is going for a state of things that is unnatural, right? Like, liberty and property rights are not natural. Like, if you go to, like, the savannah and you look at a, a, I don't know, a lion eating an animal, like, go, go ask the lion about like, the property rights, right? That is, not, that is not a natural state of things. So you need an entity, a strong entity, to, to, to protect your property rights and to protect your freedom. And then I'll also say, like, again, to whatever extent there is a, an anarchist strain in, in libertarianism, I think it is mistaken because, look, anarchy was the starting point to, to some extent, right? It's like we started with no structure. And so it is a very unstable equilibrium, right? If we evolved to this stage, it's like, it's like wishing, it's like, oh, why don't we push? Wouldn't it be neat if we push this boulder up this, up this hill over there? It's like, well, actually, this is where the boulder started. There's a reason why it's down the hill now, right? So we need to find a way that is, that is compatible with uh, Western ideals, and that is a stable equilibrium. And so I, I do believe that the idea of, uh, of state capacity is, 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 is that. Uh, totally. And, and another thing you've, you've gone pretty deep on is theory of the, of the firm by uh, Coase, uh, I believe, but also just game theory more broadly. How, explain your interest there, how you think it's sort of misperceived or, or what's important to, to know or how that sort of uh, you know, affects your, your work on a day-to-day. Yeah. Well, on the day to day, I don't know. I'm just or, I, or just mental models about how you think about yeah. it. Yeah. Um, well, okay. So in a nutshell, the theory of the firm is because uh, asks the questions like, okay, we take firms and companies for granted, but actually, if the free market is so great, why don't we do everything in the free market? Because firms are not a free market. Internally, you're just you know you're paid a fix. Basically, a firm is like, oh, I'm gonna pay you X thousand dollars a month, and it's just like unlimited access to your time, right? And they just tell you what to do. The answer is uh, again to put it in a nutshell is uh, transaction costs. Right? And it's like, actually, sure, firms internally are slightly less efficient than markets uh, because markets are just really good at uh, assigning resources. But um, what you win is that when you're in the market, you need to like find people, you need to sign a contract, you need to, uh, when, when there is a dispute with them, you need to escalate that to the justice system, which is very costly and all of that, right? Whereas in a firm, you have everybody under one roof. They've been interviewed before. You have this ongoing relationship with them. And when something is wrong, you just go talk to your manager. So you have almost this like second degree judicial system in the firm. And, and there is no contract to sign every time you want to talk to someone. And I was thinking of that when I was in general, actually on a day-to-day basis, when I was at Uber, I was just like chatting with someone on Slack that had never heard about before. And I was like, hey, I hear you're the right person to talk to about this. Can you help me with that? And they will help me. And I was like, man, that's pretty, that's pretty neat. Like this is like a very low friction thing, right? 
I think it is it is very interesting because uh, people have been saying for a few decades, and so this theory has been somewhat discredited at this point, but people have been saying for a few decades that actually the internet would make the film smaller and it would make us trend closer to like the free market ideal, right? Because uh, transaction costs go down, it's very easy to find people, you can have a repetition system and such. I, I still do believe it, right? Like at this point, people are like, look, I mean, you've been seeing this for like two decades, it's not true. And I, I just think things are taking a long time. But we are seeing it, right? And we're seeing it with uh, Uber, for example, right? Like Uber, you could think of Uber as like a reshuffling of the firm, right? Like it used to be that you had limo companies that had uh, drivers on, on their payroll. And it was just because it was hard to measure the output of the driver and all of that. And now with tech, actually, it is much easier to like onboard the drivers and recruit them and, 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 and um, measure the output and, and pay them. And so I think it, it makes complete sense to have drivers in this ecosystem to be independent contractors, right? And so I do believe we are going to see more and more of that because I just think it is so efficient to have people work under that model. And so I, I do believe this is going to be a, a huge trend of the future. And I am excited about what I call blue collar, a white collar gig economy. Right now, the gig economy has been blue collars like drivers and delivery drivers and such. I think we're going to see an Uber of engineers, for example. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. You know, we have this concept that you know, software eats the world, markets are eating the world. I think there is a directly competitive idea and it's more like egalitarianism is also like as we get richer we get more egalitarian and maybe maybe i don't know what the right words are maybe it's like capitalism meets the world communism meets the world at the same time and so you know one example here is you know we thought or a lot of people thought that crypto would enable people to become you know freelancers or entrepreneurs because you know um it would just make you know a lot of the sort of bottlenecks, uh, it would reduce a lot of bottlenecks, just make things a lot sort of easier, uh, you know, liquid contracts, stuff like that. And it turns out that actually what is making more people entrepreneurs is like cancel culture, <laughs> uh, is sort of like, uh, uh, you know, people threaten that they you know, can't, can't speak freely and, and are going to, you know, want to leave their job or don't want to uh, have that. And so I, I, we understand software is in the world. I don't think we fully appreciate or understand the dynamics behind this idea of like egalitarianism, radical egalitarianism, also eating the world and, and what that means, you know, tribalism, like, mm. you know, software hasn't eaten healthcare, education, you know, housing. And in fact, it's the other thing that, is, that, that has eaten it. And so that's something I've been thinking about and just curious to, to, to dig deeper on. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a super interesting point. I had never thought about that because it is true that, uh, the gig economy is in, in a way exacerbating inequalities, right? Because you pay people according to the outputs and, and the outputs of people is not equal, right? And so two engineers, two senior engineers at a tech company today are going to make, say, I don't know, 300K, right? And I think if you actually just pay them by the output, one of them should be paid 100, like, I don't know, 100K and the other should be paid a million, right? There is actually such a thing as a 10X engineer. Uh, once you do measure the output, I think we're going to see more of that inequality and we're going to realize that we were subsidizing the inefficient worker with the efficient one. So, I, and, I, and, and in parallel to that, I do agree that people care more and more about, the, about inequality. Again, I think this is a lot pushed by the media. How do you think these two will reconcile? Civil war. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, checks out. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I think, I, you know, it's funny. I re, uh, read Peter Zahan and he, he's, his basic point is like, no matter what America does, like over the next 20 or 30 years, it'll be totally fine because it's an energy exporter, because its geography is, is so good, because its demographics are so good. And more so just because all the other countries are fucked. He thinks China is totally fucked. And maybe he's wrong. Um, he's just a yeah. person. But he, yeah, he thinks basically like we've been subsidizing 
the global order since World War II. And as we, um, you know, pull out more because we don't, you know, need their energy and other resources as much, those, those countries are depending on us and that they will implode and it'll be just chaos everywhere else. So overall, I think we'll, we'll be like, okay, in the grand scheme of things, but I think it'll be very messy couple of decades, especially because we don't have a, a common enemy to unite us unless we, you know, sort of escalate things with China, which we have, you know, which is very possible and which actually may be a good thing if we're trying to like, yeah, I, I am a believer sort of cynically, like in the idea of uh, the, the Bedouin quote of me against my brother, me and my brother against my cousin, you know, my, my brother, and my cousin against, you know, the other family. And right now, if we don't have another family, you know, we're probably just going to fight amongst ourselves. But and I, I was lamenting this to a friend recently about like, oh man, increased polarization, increased polarization. And he's like, well, it's better that that than like, you know, Russia or, or China, like China where there's no polarization because people can't even like, you know, or, and not now, but like in their, in their worst times couldn't yeah. speak freely. So, so yeah, I think these, these, these issues are just going to keep battling themselves out. You know, one thing, if you're asking me for like optimism here, the thing that I'm excited about, if crypto really sort of works well i'm excited about this idea of uh, expanding equity ownership uh you know uh, to a lot more people uh, not just employees but also users um in ways that align incentives on the way up instead of on the way down uh or or, or post because people don't re- right now when people see amazon or facebook or whatever uber they just see you know someone rich that and they didn't get rich they don't sort of make the connection that that money goes to tax dollars that then goes to services for them so, but if instead they had some equity or some own tokens or ownership in in the platform on the way up, they would they would be rooting for these companies. So um, I hope that we can reduce inequality by either increasing marginal you know productivity of of workers and or just getting more more owners. Um, like instead of UBI, like it'd be like universal basic equity or something or or stocks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is it is a way to give everybody skin in the game. Absolutely. Yes. Let's just hope, I think it's just such a pity that the, the SEC won't let us do it. But, yeah. 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 What did you take from the, uh, the Will Durant book, uh, Lessons from History, Lessons of History? Oh, wow. I, I read it such a long time ago. No, no, um, if you don't have a, you got it. <laughs> I think I, I really loved the insight. It's like, look, the rich, the rich are going to have the choice between uh, voluntarily redistributing their wealth or be subject to the forced redistribution of poverty. Right. It's like sooner or later, like the, 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 there is revolution and like there is this cyclical approach to uh, the, the cycle of, of, of growing discontent about, this, about inequality that leads to some form of revolution. Right. And so um, the rich are going to have to agree to some redistribution at some point. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's just what's the best what's the best way for that to, to happen? I don't know. Um I, I don't have a good answer here. I, I, I think both sides have like a super good point. I, I certainly, I'm aesthetically opposed to a tax on capital yeah. I've seen it in France and it led to a fleeing of, of millionaires. I don't know if the same would happen in the US, but it is possible. And also I think we need capital, right? Yeah. Capital is a good thing. There are some ways in which uh, our current tax system is regressive. And so that just should be squashed. And so that, that, that would be the first things to, to look at for sure. What did you take from uh, why information grows? Oh, that is, that is such an interesting question. I mean, to your point earlier about America, like there is also a case here that is very bullish about America, right? And so uh, why information grows makes the point that the growth and size of the economies is a function of how much it helps 
human units manage complexity, right? And so it's like, I alone, I can make a pie, right? But I, I, I don't have enough knowledge to make something more complex, like, I don't know, um, a desk, right? I'm going to need you to make the tabletop and I'm going to make the fit, right? And so little by little, as, as economies make products that are more and more complex, like in your MacBook, like no single human knows how to make more than 1% of your MacBook, right? And so Apple is really just an entity that aggregates thousands and thousands of people that collectively know how to make a MacBook, but no single one of them knows more than 0.1% about how to make it. Uh, I knew someone, uh, um, an industrial designer who worked at uh, Apple, her job was the power button, not the volume button. <laughs> you would assume they're the same. No, like her job was the power button, right? So I, I just think that's, that's amazing how, like there is this guy, I forgot his name, he's a bio on Twitter, he's a, everything around me is someone's life work. And I would say actually it's like thousands of people's life work, right? In your, in your yeah. iPhone, you have millions of people's life work. Um, and so anyway, like why information grows comes up with a way to quantify that and to quantify how complex the products that are manufactured by companies. And, and they made this amazing website, uh, it's like Data Vivo or something that shows you the dependency graph of economies, right? And so it's like, okay, you, you start with like raw materials, right? Like oil and, and whatnot, right? And little by little, you move up in layers of abstraction. And then at the top, you're going to have like industrial machinery and MacBooks and, and transistors and CPUs and all of that stuff, right? And so again, it makes the case that uh, the, the higher a company, uh, 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 a country goes in the value chain, the better. Um, today, America is one of the countries, if not the country that that, that is highest in this value chain. And, and China is just not that good yet, right? Like China doesn't still is not great at making cars. It's still not great at making uh, semiconductors. It still, it still doesn't make great planes, right? And, and they're aware of that weakness and the, the, the CCP is, is looking at this. But I think that is the bearish case. That is one of the bearish cases against China. The other one being demogra- demography. Uh, and, and, and that is one of the bullish cases for the US. Yeah. It, you wrote a book review on, on the seven powers. Why don't you talk about... Uh, a couple of the main points you you found most interesting or, or that people should appreciate from that book. Yeah, so the idea is is moats, right? And moats are the forces that insulate you from competition, right? And so it's it's okay. Why can anybody not copy you, right? And so Seven Powers just lists seven, and it claims it is exhaustive, a list of seven possible moats, right? And so it's a uh, one network effects. Uh, so it's just, uh, Facebook, like you can't copy their can't copy their, their user base. Uh, switching costs, uh, cornered resources, like, oh, I just have all the AI engineers, or I have all the diamonds. Oh, man, I don't know if I remember them all by heart. But uh, process power, which is, again, like the operational power that I was talking about for Bird earlier. Amazon has a ton of process power. Corner positioning, so it's like basically disruption theory. It's like you're positioned in a way that other people cannot follow you. Uh, And I'm missing two. Um, Oh, economies of scale. Uh, so it's like people cannot follow you because they didn't have the scale from day one. Yeah, I think I think in general that is one of the very first. Oh, the last one is brand, right? Um, that is that is one of the one of the very first um, mental models when I when I look at a new business or the business opportunity. I'm like, okay, what is the moat, right? And very rarely do I see a company that is successful that doesn't have a moat, right? And I always start from the starting point that like, okay, if I don't see the moat, it's not because it doesn't have one; it's because I don't understand it, right? And and so. Very often, you always see there was this uh, prophetic tweet from uh, Mark Madrison, I think in 2013 or something, when uh, GoPro went public. And, 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 and he was like, it's a commodity, right? And everybody was like, no, they're building a com- like a community around like 
extreme sports lovers. And he was like, yeah, that's what everybody who sells a commodity would like you to believe, but it's a commodity we'll see in five years, right? And five years later, sure enough, like GoPro's stock has tanked, right? We, we saw the same thing with like Blue Apron recently. Like what's the mode? It's like so easy to just like put food in a box and ship it to people, right? Maybe there is some amount of process power. We're seeing the same thing, I think, with um, mattress companies. Now, all of, all of these DTC mattress companies, and it's not clear to me what is the mode, they're just selling mattresses, right? Yeah, I think I think in the world of software, it is the concept of moat is 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 a bit less relevant just because software almost always has a moat, right? Yeah. You always have. I think like one of the biggest moats in software is like switching glass, right? So for example, Stripe, like you build it into your code base, like switching out of Stripe is like super hard, right? Your to do list same. Like I have all of my to dos and things now. If I wanted to move away, it would be super hard. I've been tempted to move away from iOS, but same. Like well, iOS also has the network effect with the apps and FaceTime and iMessage. But, but also, like, all of my stuff is in Apple's ecosystem, and so there is this switching class. So, again, every time you see a successful business, I think it's, like, super useful to ask yourself, okay, which of the seven modes does it have? Yeah. I, I'm really interested in the idea of modes as it relates to, like, thinking about your career and your skill sets and sort of your assets and, and people building their own sort of personal modes based on their sort of unique skill sets they can develop and then resources and experiences uh, as, for sort of career development. I thought that was a helpful construct. Which for sure, like how, what examples do you have in mind? Like, what do you think are the biggest personal notes? Yeah, it's, it, I think there's a, a few. So for example, like uh, take someone like Elad Gill, like mm-hmm. he has invested in, you know, I don't know, a dozen, maybe 20 unicorns at this point. And that is just like, you can never take that away from him. And so, and it's so hard for somebody else to do because it, the feedback loop is so hard uh, mm-hmm. or so long such that if uh, he sort of just cement, he could be in a coma for two decades, come back out and be still one of the best angel investors of all time. And I, I think what's interesting about, and he could have done, entered his coma like seven years ago. <laughs> and so the, the work and, and, and of, of being a great investor is basically making a series of great investments like early in a short period of time um, uh, or, or just or early enough that you can sort of wait it out. So I think angel investing is, is pretty interesting if you can do it or invest, if you can do it well, and if you can do it early, I think someone like Tyler Cowen, who's just built basically this encyclopedia, you know, uh, of knowledge. And then also this like diehard audience over like, you know, a decade or two is really hard to do. So I emote in the sense of I think like things that are very hard for people to, to, to do like certain accomplishments that are just like, indescribably uh, oppressive or, or not indescribably, uh, totally legibly oppressive, like a unicorn company or, or, you know, investing in unicorns or just a piece of writing that is sort of proof of work for how, you know, incredibly intelligent someone is and, or a relationship to, to an audience. Those are some that, that come to mind. Yeah. I think, I think also the advice of like being the best in like a niche makes a lot of sense, like looking under the mood because it's like, first of all, you put yourself in a thin market and so you increase the switching costs because like, ah, like yeah. this is like one expert or really not that very many guys who are good at like lithium ion batteries for like electric cars or whatever. Yeah. And so right. So switching costs, I think is a mode and yeah, brand, I think all of these things is really brand. Like, and I think like it really speaks to the importance, for example, of having an internet presence. I keep yeah. asking everybody, I'm, I'm distressed. Like so few people are on Twitter or like have yeah. blog. everybody should be on Twitter and have a blog. Totally. And when, when you combine things, you're not supposed to combine. That's pretty interesting. Like Joe Rogan, for example, like, you know, Comedian, yeah. UFC commentator, uh, you know, 
uh, and now like you know best podcaster in the world. <laughs> um, yeah. Such an interesting background. So you, you maybe, maybe this is how we'll close. Like you've been sort of active on Twitter for a while. What, what has sort of surprised you about your sort of um, Twitter usage, or or what misconceptions do you think people have about sort of living or thinking in public in, in such a way? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is people really overestimate the downside of, of thinking in public and they underestimate the upside tremendously, right? It's it's a muscle and I was the same, right? And I was I was intimidated all the time before I was like, oh, like, should I tweet this? It's dumb. And now I just tweet whatever crosses my mind all the time. And maybe it's dumb. Maybe, maybe people are like, yeah, you shouldn't do that. But um, I, I wrote that blog post that's called Nobody Cares. People really don't understand. People are very self-absorbed. Like they're very wrapped up in their own shit. Like they don't, they don't care about you. Right. And so really they like the content out there is bad already. And so worst case they're gonna really worst case they're gonna forget about you. Right. They're literally not gonna see you because they're just gonna scroll past you and like literally two seconds later they're gonna have forgotten that like you ever said what you said. Right. And the upside is like little by little, you first of all you work that communication muscle because really Twitter helps you talk in aphorisms and forces you to like be a good, concise communicator. Right. And I, I think Twitter is really unlike any other social media because it's it's the biggest contribution to your career, right? It, it really puts you out there. It helps you build that brand. It helps you build connections. Some of my best friends today I met on Twitter, uh, some of my favorite people I met on Twitter, and I've, I've had access to people who are the very best in their field, and I could never have dreamt of having access to them outside of Twitter. And it's just it's just so good to just like, you read a book, and you tweet, oh, I just finished the book by at, and you mentioned the guy. And then you get into a debate with the author immediately. I'm like, what other service offers you that? This is just amazing. Uh, yeah, I think everybody should just be on Twitter at this point. And, and, and when people say, or when you say overestimating the downsides, you've experienced you know, a few mob, uh, in, you know, mob, mobs attacking you. And you've lived to tell the tale, or you know, you just they just forget about it at twenty four hours later. Basically. Yeah, twenty four to seventy two. Yeah, and I mean, like again, yeah, I say that about the downside as someone who has been under these mobs. I assume you have to. I think it's it's, it's a right of passage uh, on Twitter. I have been surprised about how anything you say can infuriate people. Like one of the mobs went after uh, me and Patrick Collison because we were suggesting ways in which uh, books could evolve in the future. It's like, oh, actually, you could have an app, and people were like, oh, you're like a murderer, you should go to jail. I was like, what? Another one was I was saying that the barriers to entry in tech were low and like more people should be engineers. I had so much of an outrage go after me after that. That was the one that was like most violent. It was, it was pretty, it was pretty nasty. Uh, when you're in it, it's really not funny. Like the, the one thing I would recommend is just like turn off the notifications for Twitter and for that tweet and, and yeah. disable everything and just like wait, wait it out for 24 or 72 hours. I will also say that like this is when I changed my profile picture because I used to have a profile picture in there that, that showed my face. And since I went, now I have some kind of painting. Since I went with that, I've had maybe 5% as much outrage as I used to. Wow. I noticed that a lot of the outrage was focused on my gender and skin color. It's like, oh, you're a white male, which apparently means you're not entitled to an opinion. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, just I, I, would, I would recommend that as a, as a defense mechanism. People. Yeah, I should look into it. The ones I've had are mostly because whenever, if I ever use the word meritocracy, that is the, the, oh, yeah. the a, ultimate no. trigger word. <laughs> What do you have in mind? <laughs> exactly. Um, or, you know, people don't like income share agreements. I was really excited about them, but, you know, that's, yeah. that's controversial. <laughs> yeah, nope. <laughs> yeah, I will say, like, again, people overestimate, like, right now there is so much talk about cancel culture. I wish there was more courage out there because it is yeah. a small minority that is exerting way too much power. I wish people were just like, no, I'll just speak my mind and, and that's fine, right? And yeah. 
and the consequences are, are very rarely as bad as you think they will be if you if you hold reasonable opinions. Yeah, totally. I think it's a good, great place to to wrap. Uh, my guest today has been uh, Flo Cravello. Uh, uh, the world is excited to see what what you do next. And for for people who want to learn more, uh, they can follow you on Twitter. Uh, what's what's your handle? Uh, Altimo, A L T I M O R. Perfect. Flo, this has been a great episode. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.